You are listening to a message from Adam Reardon at Redemption Church in Belvedere, Illinois. At Redemption Church, we are all about introducing people into a growing relationship with Jesus. If you would like more information, check us out online at redemption.cc. Now stay tuned for today's message. Well, hey, we are beginning a brand new summer series today on the book of Malachi. Every uh, summer, uh, we like to take time to kind of slow down and spend time uh, in just, just kind of going through a book of the Bible uh, slowly. And so as I was preparing this year for the summer series, uh, just some stuff that was on my heart and my mind, I kind of felt like God was uh, directing us as a church to the book of Malachi. And so uh, I would invite you to start reading through the book of Malachi to kind of start processing through that, seeking God uh, through his word. Uh, just to kind of give you a little insight on Malachi, is, uh, Malachi is what's considered a minor prophet. Uh, in the Old Testament, there's major prophets and minor prophets. And it, it's, it's kind of interesting because the way that's broken down is it doesn't have anything to do with the importance of their message. It has to do with the length of it. And so Malachi is considered a minor prophet because uh, his writing is only four chapters long. So it's a short one. So all the guys that wrote smaller books of the Old Testament under God's direction, those are the minor prophets. And uh, that's Malachi. And so one of the things that's really interesting, I think one of the things that really drew my attention uh, to the book of Malachi was the fact that it's the last book of the Old Testament. And, and the reason that that's significant is because there's a 400-year gap. Uh, there's a 400-year lapse. Uh, there's a 400-year time of silence between God speaking to the nation of Israel through Malachi and the arrival of Jesus in Matthew. In fact, in many ways, if we think about it like this, Malachi is kind of like a door. And what I mean by that is a door is something that separates what is from what's next. Maybe think about it this way. Uh, have you ever just had kind of one of those weeks where the last thing you were looking forward to was going to work the next day? And so you go through like the morning routine. If you're like me, that involves coffee. You drive to work and you're like kind of mustering up that energy because you know the minute you walk through the door, your life changes, right? The minute you walk through the door, you're at work. Once you walk through the door, there's voicemails and demands being made. And so maybe you've even done this before because I've done this before where you get to the place you work and you kind of stand at the door and you just go, because you know the minute you open the door, it's about to change. Now there's the other side of that, right? Because there's like this thing called Friday, and maybe it's been a long week and you're at work and you know on the other side of the door is freedom. Like on the other side of the door, uh, there's some entertainment, maybe some time with friends and families. Maybe you get to have some recreation, a little bit of time off. And so on a, on a Friday, if that's kind of how your weekend schedule works, is uh, you know that you're watching the clock. And, the, and once you punch out, because you've done this before, you like run to the door because you're not going to let anything get between you and what's on the other side of the door because the door separates what is for what's next. Or maybe, maybe it's just one of those things where you get home and, and you drive your car and you pull into the driveway and, and you know that once you get through the door, uh, you're home. And, and that the door kind of separates you from the outside, from the inside, from what is to what's next. And the, and the way that, that, that Malachi works is kind of similar like a door. That if we really kind of think about this, what God says to the people in, through Malachi is like, hey, this is really important. Hey, this is the last thing I'm going to communicate to you. These are the last things I'm going to say to you. And then God goes silent for 400 years as, as there's this anticipation of this groaning and this waiting for the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah. In fact, maybe think about it this way. If you knew with kind of absolute certainty that you weren't going to speak to a loved one for a really long time, what would that conversation look like? Like maybe you had a loved one who was joining the military and you just knew that, hey, they're going to be at boot camp and it's going to be for a really long time and they're going to be out of reach, out of contact. There's no text, there's no calls, there's no Facebook, no tweets, no Instagram. I mean, there's just no form of communication. What does that conversation look like? Uh, maybe you, you have a loved one going into the mission field, and you're just like, hey, where they're going, they, they can't communicate. They, they can't let you know what's going on. What would that last conversation look like? And maybe, maybe you have a loved one who you know is ending the, the end of their life. What would that conversation look like? And see, what I think is true for all of us, which is also true about God, is that we wouldn't waste a lot of time 
We wouldn't make a lot of small talk. We wouldn't spend a lot of time talking about things like the weather or the ball game. We probably wouldn't talk about the movie we just saw or what we ate for dinner last night. Like what we would do in those conversations is what we'd really want to do is we'd want to communicate our heart. I want you to know how I feel about you. I want to tell you things that are important. I want to leave a lasting impression in your heart and in my heart. Like I want this relationship thing to be solid. If you're going to go away for a while, if this is the last time I'm going to talk to you, I don't want to leave anything unsaid. And I think that's what God is doing through Malachi. He's speaking to the nation of Israel and he's saying, hey, I'm going to go quiet for a while. But before I do, I want, to, I want to communicate some things to you that are important, that are necessary. I want you to know who I am and everything, everything I'm communicating to you, I want you to have because it's for your good. In fact, one of the things that God is communicating to the nation of Israel through Malachi is simply who he is and his heart for the nation of Israel. In fact, as we kind of jump into this introduction of Malachi, one of the big themes all throughout the book of Malachi, the thing that God keeps going back to over and over and over again to communicate to the nation of Israel is this, is that God is like a father who loves his children. He's going to continue to go back to this and go, hey, I know that there's a gap between us. God is holy, holy, holy. He's the creator, all-powerful, ever-present, all-knowing, that he is above all things. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. He's holy, holy, holy in the presence of the angels. And he goes, I know that you don't fully get me. So God's going, here's how I want you to think of me. I'm like a good father that loves you. And see, sometimes that's hard for us because not, every, not all of us have good fathers. And so what happens is, is we take our baggage and our hurt or our weak definition of a father and we try to ascribe that to our heavenly father. And God says, no, 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 I want you to know what a good father looks like. That God says, once you know who I am, that's, that's the new definition for even your earthly father. And so God is calling the nation of Israel back to him, saying, I want you to relate to me. I want you to know me. I want you to understand me. It's a good, good father who loves you and who wants what's best for you. And what happens then through the prophet Malachi is that God begins to speak to the nation of Israel. In fact, it's more than speaking. He's passionately pleading with his children. And if you're a parent, you've experienced this because you had to do it. If you're a child, you've received this from your parents before. That there's just times that because your parents love you, they passionately plead with you because they want what's best for you. Like with the heat and the sun, kind of the imagery that comes to my mind, it's like trying to put suntan lotion on a kid and all they want to do is swim. You're like, just slow down for a minute. I know this doesn't necessarily feel good because, you know, like rubbing that suntan lotion on your face is probably one of the worst feelings in the world. And if you're a kid and you've done this before, like, you know, mom's not rubbing it all in and, you know, dad's messing with you. He's drawing stuff on your back that you don't even know about. And so, like, you're trying to not have those white streaks and all that stuff. And you just, but the parents go, listen, you know, what's worse than putting on a suntan lotion, really bad sunburn. Like, you know what, you know, what's worse than a little SPF 50, getting those blisters on your back, heat stroke. Like there's something worse that because we love you, sometimes there's these things that we do, there's things that we say, there's boundaries that we establish, but it's because we love you and we want what's best for you. That's exactly what God is doing through Malachi to the nation of Israel. Now what's interesting is before God gets to the stuff, before he gets to this, this pleading of what he desires for them, what he does first is he communicates his heart to them. And I think this is really important for us because if we don't understand the heart of God, then we'll never understand the word of God. Like to really understand what God is saying, we first have to understand who he is. Like for us to really treasure the things that he tells us and the things that he speaks to us, we first have to understand his heart and who he is and what it means for us. And that's exactly how God starts in the book of Malachi. So we're going to jump in Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. This is how Malachi starts. He says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. 
For us, that's a really abnormal, strange sentence. You've probably never written a letter to a friend or started an email that way. And so I want to take a minute to talk about what's going on here. Now, what's interesting is, is one of the things we see right off the bat is that God is a God who speaks. That God is a God who communicates. That's what, that's what Malachi is saying. He's saying, listen, this is God's word spoken to you. This is God's word for you. Uh, this letter is specifically written to Israel. And I love this because one of the ways some of the scholars describe it, I'd, I'd never quite thought about it this way, is that Israel is like the Old Testament church. That God has established a relationship with them and he's made covenants with him. That's the biblical way to say promises with them. That they're God's chosen people set aside for his glory. And he's speaking to them. He goes, hey, there's some things that, that I want to speak to you. And here's what's really interesting. At this time in the nation of Israel, the entire nation, I mean, we can put them all in the same basket together, they all have really weak faith. They all have a really weak belief in God. For the most part, the nation of Israel just doesn't really know who God is and doesn't understand his heart. And see, when Malachi uses this word oracle, like we kind of like, like we chalk words like oracle up to something like Harry Potter, like what's going on with that? But what it means in the Greek language is this. It has two meanings. Number one, it means divine revelation communicated through God's spokesman. So when Malachi says, hey, what you're about to read, he goes, listen, I, Malachi, am communicating this to you, but these aren't my words. Like, I didn't make this up. I didn't get up this morning, have a cup of coffee, and go, hey, I'm going to write the nation of Israel a letter. He goes, this is God's word. That God has spoken his word to me. He's given me what I'm supposed to deliver to you. So in that sense, it's an oracle. You'll, you'll see it through my writing, through my style, through my voice. But ultimately, it's the voice of God. It also goes deeper than that, that an oracle also means a burden, a load to bear, something that is imposed upon the prophet who, like a load bearer, has no alternative but to accept and to discharge his duty. So you can kind of put these two together, and it kind of, it kind of looks like this, that Malachi goes, hey, I don't know why God chose me, but he did. And I know what God wants to say to you, and it's not always going to be pretty. It's not always going to be fun. I don't necessarily want to say everything I have to say to you. I don't necessarily want to communicate all this to you, but here's the thing. It's important. Like, I have no other choice. I have to be faithful to the God who called me, so I'm going to deliver to you what he told me to deliver to you. The name Malachi literally means God's messenger. And Malachi goes, hey, it's from God. It's for you. Don't shoot the mailman. I'm just delivering the mail. And what's interesting is when God wants to speak to an entire nation, he, he, speak, he picks one prophet to communicate his heart and his desire. And so when we open up our Bibles and when we read the book of Malachi, we read the very word of God. That any time we open up our Bibles and we read what's in front of us, it is the literal voice of God communicated to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. It means when the Scripture speaks, God speaks. That God speaks directly to us through His Word empowered by the Holy Spirit. And don't miss this because sometimes what we desire in our lives is like this personal word from God. And I think it's okay to desire that, but, but what God does usually is speaks to us through the scripture he's already given us. God is speaking to an entire nation through one person who is writing these things down and declaring them to the nation. And God is going to speak to you and he's going to speak to me as we process through Malachi by reading the very scriptures of God. Practically, that means for you and for me that if we want to hear from God, we have to open our Bibles and start reading. Like if you want to hear the voice of God, the way you start is by reading the Word of God. To get into it. Memorize it. Get with friends and talk about it. Study it. That whenever we crack open our Bibles, it's the very voice of God communicating to us. And I think there's something tragic happening in our time and in our culture, especially among Christians. I think we miss this. Or maybe at least we take it for granted. 
Because if, if, we, if you go to a bookstore, if you shop online at Amazon, you know what we really enjoy? We really enjoy reading books that people wrote about God instead of reading the word of God. And there's a difference. We delight in reading the stuff that people have written about the word of God rather than just reading the very word of God. Listen, wherever you are, whatever's going on, I don't care if you're in your home, your office, your car, the workplace, an airplane, a taxi, a plane, train, an automobile, wherever you are, when you crack open your Bible or when you turn on your Bible, it is the very voice of God being communicated to you. Now listen, we, we get callous to this. And we're like, yeah, 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 this is like Sunday School 101. This is like back when I was eight years old on the flannel graph. Like we get this, but do we get it? I mean, when you open up your Bible, when you turn on your Bible, when you get into the scriptures, it's the same voice that spoke the heavens into existence. It is the same voice that commanded the sea to come forth. It is the same voice that told the sun to rise and the stars to exist and the moon where to set. It is the same voice that spoke all living things into creation. It is the same voice that spoke life into Adam and to Eve. And we have access to it 24-7. And yet we settle for Netflix. That instead of pursuing the heart of God, we would rather be entertained. Instead of seeking the voice of God, we would rather hear what other people think about God. And see, this becomes one of the major themes in the book of Malachi. That God is like a father who loves his children, and he offers a relationship with him. That God would come to us like a father and say, hey, hey, you can know me. You can know my heart. You can know my voice. You can know what I'm like. That we can have a relationship that the very God who created all things is above all things. The Alpha and the Omega would come to us and say, we can have a relationship where I am your father and you are my child. And yet we settle instead for having a relationship with God where we settle for just wanting stuff from him. And God says his very best for us is him. And listen, don't, don't get me wrong. Because there's stuff that I want. And there's stuff that you want. It's hot this week. And like our central air conditioners broke. So like this morning in our house, it was like 78 degrees at like 6 in the morning. Not, not my idea of awesome. So listen, getting the air conditioner fixed is great, but God is better. Like getting a new car is great, but God is better. Climbing the corporate ladder, great, but God is better. Finishing that season on Netflix that you're after, like that's okay, but God is better. That you could take just about everything we pursue everything that we're chasing after, everything that's on our priority list. And here's the thing, God's better. He's more important. He's more worthy of our pursuit. And rather than having a relationship with God, we choose to, to, to treat him like a cosmic vending machine or a genie in a bottle. That rather than coming into the heart, into the presence, instead of having a relationship with God, we just come to him when we want stuff from him. And if we're honest, we get kind of mad when he doesn't just give us what we want when we want it. And see, the thing that separates the nation of Israel, don't miss this, the thing that separates the nation of Israel from every single other nation on the planet is the fact that God has adopted them as his children and that he has made promises to them. The biblical word is covenants. But Israel has a unique relationship with God. God has made promises to them that he's made to no one else. God has offered a relationship to them that he has not offered anyone else. God has offered blessings to them that he has offered no one else. God has given the nation of Israel a history up to this point that he has given no one else. That God has been their rescuer, their provider, their deliverer, their sustainer. 
And rather than pursuing God, rather than growing in their knowledge and their experience of the heart of God, but rather than living in the power and the assurance and the joy that comes from knowing the love of God, they have pursued everything but God. Rather than going deep and running hard after having a relationship with God, they have rebelled against him. They have sought to fulfill their own desires and delights to build their own kingdoms. And instead of rejoicing in how God has seen them through, instead of being thankful for all that God has already done, what they do is they show up like spoiled kids who just demand that God give them more of what they want, when they want it, and they're mad that he hasn't given it to them. In fact, one of the things that's really interesting about the book of Malachi is that somehow God in his power and his sovereignty reveals to Malachi what his relationship is like with the nation of Israel. In such a way that Malachi just doesn't know about it. This isn't just fact to him, but it's as though he's experienced it. And so what Biblical scholars would call the book of Malachi a book of disputation. That's a big fancy way to say it's a chronicle of Israel's dispute with God. So the way that Malachi writes the book is God will make a decree or God will make a revelation or God will reveal his heart or his truth to the nation of Israel. And then what God reveals to Malachi is how the nation grumbles or argues against God. And so every time we see Malachi address the nation of Israel, he'll say, hey, this is what God says, but this is what you say. This is what God desires, but this is how you respond. And over and over then we'll see that God reveals himself, that God reveals his truth, that God reveals his heart, and then we see how the nation of Israel responds. And so here we go. We're just going to handle two verses this week. Or actually, we're going to handle a couple more. But here we go. Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. God speaks. This is the first thing he says, because before we can understand his word, we have to understand his heart. So that's where he starts. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. He goes, I want you to know above all things, I love you. I'm like a father that loves you. I care for you. I want what's best for you. I'm a, I'm a God that, that wants you to live the best possible life, to make the best possible decisions. I want what's best for you because I love you. And one of the things we have to remember is that everything begins with God's love for us. Everything begins with the Father's love. Because God's going to address some really big things in the book of Malachi, but it's not religion. In fact, what God is calling the nation of Israel out of is this man-made religion. See, religion says if you're good and if you follow the rules and if you do things in the right way, in the right order, then you'll get God's love. And so God's love in religion is all dependent upon your ability to perform. You are the beginning and you are the end of God's love, but that's not what the God of the Bible says. The God of the Bible starts with, I already love you. Listen, I, I love you. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. I'm a father who loves his child. You're the child. I love you. So everything I'm going to say to you, no matter how hard it is, everything I'm going to say to you, no matter how much you don't like it, everything I'm going to say to you is because I love you and I know better than you do because I created you. So know that I love you. That God starts with his love for us. In fact, one of the images that Malachi will, will lead us to is this idea of an orphanage. And if you think about an orphanage filled with children who are fatherless. See, religion would say is that if you wanted to adopt a child in an orphanage, that a religious father would go into the orphanage and say, I just want to observe the children. And after I observe the children, I'm going to take the best, the brightest, the best behaved, and I'm going to reduce them out of the group, and then I'll adopt the one child that I think is the best child above all the rest. But God's not that kind of father. Rather, what God does is he walks into the orphanage and he says, I'll take them all. I'll take the rebellious. I'll take the wild at heart. I'll take those that don't even want to be adopted, but I will take them all and I already love them. 
I will now be the father to the fatherless. They will be mine and I will be theirs. And because I love them, their lives will be different. Because I love them, they'll be provided for. Because I love them, their lives can be changed. Because I love them, they now have a future that they didn't have before. So God is like a father that walks into the orphanage and says, I'll just take them all. Go ahead and shut your doors. They're mine now. They have a name. They have a home. They have an inheritance. They'll be provided for. They'll be loved. And so then you ask the question of, well, then what kind of love would you give in return to that kind of father? I mean, if you're a kid in an orphanage and a guy walks in and is like, hey, all of you, home with me today. You'll eat at my dinner. You have a, a bedroom. All that is mine is now yours. You respond back and go, I love you because you first loved me. I'm thankful for the love. I'm so excited that I now have a home, that I now have a name, that I now have an inheritance. How do you not love somebody who first loves you? That we would expect those kind of people to be filled with gratitude and thankfulness, adoration, and love. And yet God speaks to the nation of Israel and he says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? That this is how the nation of Israel responds to God's love. What do you mean you've loved us? It doesn't feel like you've loved us. You haven't loved us. At least you haven't loved us well. That the nation of Israel actually accuses God of lying. Like, you're not a good father. You don't even know the truth. The nation of Israel accuses God of falling short. They tell God, you reveal yourself as a good father, but you're a bad father. And see, we can look at this and we can be the judge of Israel and go, man, they're bad. And how could they? Who do they think they are? I mean, why, how could they treat the love of God like that? But there's a better way. There's a better way to look at it. And see, the best way for you and I to look at this is to ask the question and go, do I do that? Is that how I treat the love of God? I mean, is God like the God who adopted me out of the orphanage that he offered me himself, that I was fatherless, and now I have a father, that I didn't have a home, and now I have a phone, I didn't have an identity, but now I have an identity, I didn't have an inheritance, but now I have an inheritance, my future wasn't very bright, but now my future has been changed, all because of his love that he just walked in and chose me and loved me even though I didn't deserve it? Am I like the nation of Israel? Do I shake my fist at a God who loves me? Have I reduced the love of God down to just wanting what I want when I want it without having a relationship from him? Could it be true that I just des desire getting stuff from God rather than desiring God himself? See, God is speaking to the nation of Israel, the Old Testament church, and yet this message is powerful and potent and relevant to us, our church, today. And see, one of the questions that Malachi is going to engage us on, one of the things he's going to ask us to think about is, do you really believe that God loves you? And I'm not talking like, yes, yeah, somebody told me, or grandma believed that God loves me, or somewhere in our family there was someone that believed. Do you believe? Do you really believe that God loves you. And see, what's going on in the nation of Israel, there's struggle everywhere. There's financial struggle. Their economy's on a major downturn. There's a political struggle. Uh, there's a war between the power and, and the prestigious. There's, there's some stuff that's going on that, that the nation of Israel is not what it once was, that their credibility and their renown as a nation is waning. There's a moral struggle in the nation of Israel. There's anarchy, rebellion, sin, and folly. Kind of sounds like America 2017. Not that different. And what's happening is the nation of Israel is looking at their lives. And they're going, we don't have that much money. We don't have that much power. There's political struggle. The struggles are real. The struggles are hard. God, if you loved us, then we think our lives would look different than they do now. 
And so what happens is they try to put God in this thing where they go, if you really loved us, then you would do this for us. God, if you really loved me, then I could get what I want. God, if you really loved me, then I wouldn't have any struggles. I'd have more money in the bank. We'd have different political leaders. The struggles would be easier or at least totally gone. You ever been there before? You ever wondered, hey, God, if you really loved me, then maybe my life would look different than it does now? And see, the good news is you can be honest with God because he already knows. God has already revealed all this to Malachi about the nation of Israel, and God already knows our hearts and knows how our feels, so we can come to him with our grumbling, with our complaining, with our disputes, and with our struggles. And he's a big, big God who's like a father that loves us, and he says, no, no, come to me with that stuff. Tell me your struggle. Tell me your frustration. Tell me what's going on in your heart because he wants to address it. He wants to speak life into it. He wants to take away the struggle and replace it with a knowledge and an understanding of who he is. And see, what Malachi gives us is this illustration. And, and, and if you're a parent, you probably do this. If you're a dad, my, my guess is at some point, maybe when your kids were young, you do this. But like in my house, I have a chair, and it's my chair. And if you come to my house, you can look at my chair, but it's still my chair. You have other spots available to sit in, but not my chair. And what happens is, is there's times now, and as my kids get older, this gets incredibly harder because it hurts me. But I will call my kids up into my chair with me, and they will sit with me and we'll snuggle and watch shows together. And as they get bigger, I just find that it's more uncomfortable for me. And yet some of the greatest times I have with my kids are times when we spend time in dad's chair together. My sons also are starting to believe it's their chair, so I have to, you know, I have to keep the authority that it's my chair. The dogs also think it's their chair, but they lose that battle every time. And Malachi gives us this picture that God is like a father that says, hey, hey, son, hey, daughter, why don't you come sit with me in the chair? I want you to know my heart. I want us to have a relationship. I want you to know me. I want you to delight in my heart for you. I want you to treasure up the feelings I have towards you. And Malachi gives us this picture that we're like children that climb into our Heavenly Father's lap. And when he says, I love you, we just slap him in the face. Kind of what God's revealed to Malachi. It's almost like God said, hey, hey Malachi, I want you to sit in the chair for a minute. I want, I want to show you what it's like to be me in my relationship with Israel. So you sit in the chair and see how my people respond when I tell them that I love them. That what God tells his people that he loves them, that they just slap him in the face and say, no, you don't. At least you don't love us the way we want you to love us. And see, what happens is, is we tend to approach God and we look at him and what we think he should do with our eyes still on us, that we try to evaluate God based on ourselves. And so what we do is we kind of come to God and say, hey, so you say that you're a loving father. Well, I'll evaluate your fatherhood and I'll evaluate your love based on what I think I'm worth. Let me, God, let me tell you what I think I deserve. Let me know my ex, let me know that I expect some things of you. If you want me to see you as a good, good father who loves me, then here's the standard of what I think that looks like. And Malachi begins to challenge the nation of Israel, and he begins to challenge us. And he says, hey, some of you are so focused on what you want from God today, you've forgotten what he's already done for you. Like, you're so focused on what's going on in this 24-hour period that you've forgotten that some of the greatest stuff God's done for you, he has already done for you. So before you climb up in the chair and slap, slap God in the face, maybe we need a history lesson. Now, I want to be so careful here because I felt like early on as a Christian that I had good people with good intentions that said bad things. And I remember as a new believer, there was someone in particular that told me that if I really loved Jesus, I would read my Bible for an hour every day. And so I tried, and I tried really, really hard. And I'm like ADD, and I, I couldn't make it past like 10 minutes. And so I always felt like a failure. 
Like, I kind of always felt like maybe I didn't love Jesus enough or maybe he didn't love me enough and that was the problem. See, that's, that's religion. And, and so here, he, I'm not saying this this way, but I want to encourage you also that one of the reasons we have to continually get into the Word of God is because God most often speaks to us by reminding us of the things he's already said. And see, one of the things that God's going to say to the entire nation of Israel is something that he's already said. And for us, it's going to take a little bit of work this morning because when God speaks to us, we probably have no idea what he's talking about. And so all I'm saying is this, is the more familiar we are with the word of God, the more familiar we are with the scriptures of God, the more capable we'll be of knowing what he's saying to us when we need him to say it. And what God begins to say is he gives this unexpected history lesson. In fact, for us, we'll be like, what in the world is he talking about? Because there's this whole dispute. I love you, says the Lord, and the nation of Israel says, no, you don't. You don't really love us. So God gives this word to Malachi to speak to the nation. Malachi chapter 2, starting, in verse five, or starting 2 through 5, he says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother? You're like, wait a minute, God, we're talking about your ability to love me. And he's like, yeah, yeah, just follow me into this. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? So God gives some family history. And he goes all the way back to the very beginning of the nation of Israel. He says, remember that you were a people that weren't one of people? Remember that there was a time that there was no Israel? Remember there was a time that you all didn't exist? He says, remember the, the way that you became the nation of Israel was through Abraham? And he begins to give them a family history. I'll read the whole thing and then break it down. He says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. God says, you want to know how I love you? Let's go all the way back to the birth of the nation. That before there was a nation of Israel, there was a guy named Abraham. And there was nothing special about Abraham. Abraham was not a great guy. He was not from a great Family. In fact, Joshua chapter 24, verse 2 says that Abraham came from a generation of men that did not love God and served false gods. That his father, his father's father, his great grandfather, his great great grandfather were all godless men who worshiped false gods. And yet God chose Abraham. And God does not pick Abraham because Abraham is great. God picks Abraham because God is great. And he says, out of you, out of you and the relationship you have with your wife, you don't have any children, but here's the deal. I'm going to make a promise to you. And if you will enter into a relationship with me, I'm going to perform a miracle and I'm going to give you a child and from you will come a great nation. I'm going to give you a son and through that son will come a nation and through that nation will come a savior. And God begins a relationship and a covenant with Abraham that births the nation of Israel. And one of the things I love about the story of Abraham is that God pulls off a miracle to change a man's legacy. That had it not been for God, Abraham, we wouldn't be talking about him today. The most significant thing about Abraham's life and maybe the most significant thing about your life and my life is the relationship we have with God. Of all the things that we'll leave behind for our families and for our children and for their children and the generations that come is the way we love God today. And God says, remember Abraham? Remember the covenant I made with him? Remember that Abraham and Sarah, who had no kids because of God, had a son named Isaac? His name means he laughs. Because when Sarah heard God say she'd have a son, she laughed in disbelief. And then when she had the son, she laughed with joy because God is good. 
Well, Isaac grows up, and with his wife, Rebecca, Rebecca becomes pregnant with twins, Jacob and Esau. Genesis chapter 25, verse 22 says that literally as Rebecca was pregnant, she could feel her sons fighting in her womb. I don't have twins, but I see my sons battle over everything. And the reason that their sons battle over everything is because God literally told her, inside of you are the father of two nations. And the reason your sons fight is because even their nations will fight. And so Esau is the oldest twin he's born first. In their time, in their way, this is significant because the oldest, the firstborn, receives the birthright, receives the inheritance, receives the greatest blessing. But Genesis 25 also tells us that Esau is born first, Jacob is born second, literally with his hand holding on to the ankle of his older brother and being like, no, 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 trying to pull him back in. That they're battling even at the point of delivery. The scripture tells us that Esau is a man's man. He's a tough guy. He is a hairy dude. In fact, the Bible says that he was born a hairy child and his hair was red, which means this. When Esau was born, he looked like Elmo. He'd grow up to look like Bigfoot. That he was just a hairy dude who if he lived a day, he would probably drive a truck, at least wear a trucker's hat, have a great beard, covered in hair, and he'd probably be a guy that would challenge everyone to arm wrestle and he would win. Because this is what we find out about Esau, that he is a hunter, he is a fisherman, he is a gatherer. That listen, when they wonder, when, when their family wonders what they're going to eat for dinner tonight, it's Esau that says, you will eat what I kill and bring home. That Esau would carry an animal in, an animal in over his shoulder and be like, I just killed this. Let me whip this up quick. I'm going to butcher it up. And this is what we're having for dinner tonight, that he was that kind of guy, a man's man, a tough guy. The scripture, however, gives us this picture of Jacob that he's the second born and he doesn't like to be outside. He likes to stay home with mom. But unlike his hairy brother, that Jacob's kind of a mama's boy who stays indoors and likes to do the things that mom does. The Bible kind of gives us this picture that Esau goes out into the world and hunts and Jacob stays home crocheting and knitting with mom. That Esau goes, kills an animal, and comes in and washes his hand and uses the doily that Jacob had made earlier that day. So if you want to choose one to be the leader of a nation, who do you pick? I would probably go with the manly man who can hunt, gather, and kill things. And yet Esau sells his birthright to Jacob for a meal. While he might be tough, he's not the brightest. He's hungry one day, and Jacob has food, so he sells the birthright. And more than that, God picks Jacob. Because what he says is, hey, if Esau is a great leader, everybody's going to go, yeah, he was born a great leader. But if Jacob, that's a God-only story. Like the guy that's making doilies turns into be a, a, a somebody for the Lord. That's a God story. And so God picks Jacob for Jacob's good and for God's glory. And so through Jacob comes the nation of Israel and eventually comes Jesus. Through Esau comes the nation of Edom, which eventually leads to Herod, the guy who tries to kill Jesus. Two brothers, two nations, two different people show up. See, God answers the question that Israel asks, how have you loved us? He goes, the way I've loved you is because I've chosen you. The way that I loved you is before you were ever born, I invited you as a nation into a relationship with me. I've given you covenants and promises. I've given you my presence. I've shown you my glory. I've invited you to know me as your father and have a relationship with me. God says, listen, you're like bad kids, really bad kids, but I still chose you and I still loved you and I've adopted you. And no matter how bad your rebellion has been, I've continued to love you and pursue you as a father. See, we get frustrated when we don't get from God what we think he owes us, or at least what we feel like we deserve. And what Malachi reminds us is, hey, in those moments when you don't feel like God's answering your prayers, in those moments when you don't feel like he's given you what you think you, you at least deserve or somehow owed, remember this, everybody deserves hell. That's what you deserve. 
Every single one of us deserves one thing from God, and it's hell. Anything else we get from God is grace. And through Malachi, God reminds his people, listen, you're different, and you're different because of God. Because listen, you know what Esau got? He got what he deserved. You know what Jacob got? Grace. Edomites, you know what they got? What they deserved. That God says forever he will oppose them and he will hate them. Whatever they build, he will tear down forever. You know what the nation of Israel got? Grace. That for some of us, we will spend eternity in heaven with God in paradise, not because we deserve it, but because of grace. But there will other be people that get exactly what they deserve. And it's not an eternity apart from God. It's an eternity apart from God without his love, without his mercy, without his grace. And it's called hell. And God goes, how have I loved you? I've chosen you. How have I loved you? I've given myself to you. How have I loved you? Everything you have is really mine. Without me, you would be nothing but continually over and over and over again. I just keep giving you more of myself and I just keep showing you my grace. That's how I've loved you. And see, Malachi invites the nation of Israel and he invites us to really dig in deep, to run hard after the Father's heart. And that when we know our Father's heart, that we would continually become more like him because he loves us. See, everything that God's going to speak to us through the book of Malachi is God saying, as your heavenly Father, I love you, and I see how you're living, and it's breaking my heart. It's not that I want to create religious rules for you. It's because what you're doing is killing you, and it breaks my heart to see you living the way that you're living apart from me. So when God speaks about heartless worship, he's speaking as a God who loves us. But when God speaks about the nation of Israel and living together before they're married, marrying people who don't believe the same things, when he speaks about divorce, it's because he loves them. When God speaks about the way he wants them to raise their children, it's because he loves them. When God speaks about money, it's because he loves them. It's from God, their heavenly Father, who loves them, saying, I don't want you to be hurt I don't want you to live in this sin. I don't want you to experience the disaster that's coming your way. But as your father who loves you, I'm trying to give you what's best for you. And so as we begin this brand new study on the book of Malachi, there's an invitation, and it's a simple invitation that God gives to all of us, and that's to return to him. That God loves you so much that he has revealed to you his love for you. And see, for us, we're not like the nation of Israel. Like our, our covenant isn't tied to Abraham, although it's part of it that our promises and our covenants to God are, are in Jesus. So that when God says to us, hey, I love you, and we might be like the nation of Israel and go, how, how do you love us? And God said, because I gave you my son. I gave you my best that my son would come to live for you and die for you in your place for your sin on the cross and then would rise again on the third day so you could have forgiveness of sin and life to the full and every promise to become sons and daughters of God with the hope of eternity in your hearts for today. He goes, I love you. And maybe right now you don't feel it. I think what Malachi would say to you and he would say to me is the same thing he said to the nation of Israel, but look back on what he's already done. He's chosen you. He's offered you grace. He's given you his son. Return to him. Get away of this religious stuff. Get away from, from this mundane, from this duty. But return to the Lord. You would have a living, active, passionate relationship with him, that you would behold the majesty and the beauty and the love that God has for you, and his love for you would motivate you to run after him. That his love for you would motivate you to, to go strong after the heart of God, to know who he is and what he's like, that when you would know the kind of love God has for you, that you would rejoice and, and celebrate and worship and be thankful, that you would look back at God and say, because you loved me, I love 
you. I think one of the things that Malachi calls the nation of Israel to, and he will call us to, is a zeal for the Lord. And quite honestly, church, I think it's a zeal that most Christians have lost today. That we go, I, I got to read my Bible because I have to. I got to go to church because I have to. I have to forgive because I have to. I have to do this and I have to do that because I have to. And I don't think that's what God ever wanted for us. I don't think that's what God ever desired for the relationship to be like. But God says, when you know my love, that, that love would motivate you, that love would empower you, that love would encourage you, that you wouldn't go, because I have to, because, because I get to. That it's incredible to me how much the things that we get to do turn into things we have to do. And yet we see guys like King David who are known for going after the heart of the Lord. In Psalm 84, he lives in a palace. David is a king. He has everything he wants. And yet his zeal, his passion is, better would it for me to be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to be anywhere else. He's like, better is one day in the court of God than a thousand in the palace made by men. That he has a zeal and a passion to go after the heart of God because he understands how much God loves him and desires for him to have a relationship. So here's the invitation. To come back to having a relationship with God. Maybe for some of us in the room it would be the first time we have a relationship with God. But Malachi reminds us that God desires for us to have a relationship. He doesn't desire the rules. He doesn't desire the religion. What he desires is a relationship where we would know him and that we would know the very heart of him who we call God. That we would know how much he loves us. That because he first loved us, that we could love him in return. That we would spend time in our lives knowing and beholding and celebrating the faithfulness and the grace of God and treasuring it up and celebrating it. That his love for us would cause us to delight in his word and desire more of it. That his love for us would cause us to desire to obey his instruction because we would believe it would be the best possible thing for us. That his love for us would actually be the very things that satisfies us. It would be our hope and our joy, knowing that we have a good, good father who is holy, good, and faithful and always works for his glory and our good. Let me pray for us. Thanks again for listening to this message from Redemption Church in Belvedere, Illinois, where we believe faith is a journey, not a guilt trip. Listen again next week, but in the meantime, visit us at redemption.cc.